everybody! <laughs> Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Uh, now what we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we get people to come and stand up on stage and do some tragedy. We're a live show and we're also a podcast. And so tonight we're going to be recording three podcasts, which means we have three acts tonight for you. Uh, so... The night tonight is Tragic Autumn, that is the theme. Uh, we've done some, this is the fourth of our seasonal shows this year. We started with the winter and we're ending with the autumn, which I think is appropriate for a night about tragedy to start in the bleakest time and end just when we're getting back there again, just when things are starting to die and things are starting to sort of fall from the trees. So what we want to be at Stand Up Tragedy, what we'd like the audience to, to do is to laugh until they cry and cry until they laugh and we try to create a safe space to talk about unsafe things. So consider this to be a content note. Uh, the people on stage are going to be talking about tragedy and tragedy is about sad things. So there should be some laughs as well as some tears, but we will hear about sad things. So expect to hear some sad things on stage. Okay, everybody, we're going to have the last act of Tragic Autumn now, uh, appropriately called Tragic Fall, uh, to represent for, the, for our American friends. And I mean, autumn's, I love autumn so much. What I like about it is that like both the American word and the British word for autumn are cool in different ways. So like I like fall as well as autumn, but I wouldn't want to see autumn go away. I would be sad about that. So yes, right. So we're going to have three more performers doing some tragedy around the concept of tragic fall. The first one of them, you can find him at James Harris now on Twitter. Put your hands together, everyone, for James Harris! He's coming from the back, so keep those claps coming. Good evening, everyone. Uh, the French have a saying which is uh, tu comprendre uh, c'est tout pardonner. Uh, does, does anyone know what that means? Okay, language learning in this country is, it seems dead. Uh, it means um, to, to understand everything is to forgive everything. About 12 years ago, uh, I was working for social services in Nottingham. And I have to be honest, it wasn't uh, the favorite time of my life. A lot of my wages were taken up by the bus ride to work. I couldn't drive. And uh, after I'd uh, rearranged their entire filing cabinet system, which hadn't been done since the 1980s, uh, there wasn't really much for me to do except sit at my desk and pretend to work, a skill I am very good at. <laughs> and I was sitting there pretending to work one day when I looked out of the window and there was a small sort of garden area behind the window and I could hear in the garden the sound of a woodpecker going... Coo. And it struck me, as I heard the woodpecker, that a few months earlier, I had been a high-flying graduate at an elite university. I had performed with great distinction in my exams. I was a president of the university sketch society, and I had a beautiful girlfriend. 
And a few months later, I had dropped out of my university uh, due to academic difficulties. My sketch review show had been marked by several hundred people walking out. <laughs> and my girlfriend had left me for one of my friends. And it seemed for me, somehow, that that woodpecker symbolized all of that. <laughs> that when they take everything away from you, what is left is a woodpecker going, a few months later, I was walking down a beach in Bournemouth with a friend. Uh, the fact that I'd slept with her had exacerbated the end of the relationship. And I remember saying to her, I thought I was unleavable. Now, you know when you hear something you said in the past and you literally cannot believe that you said it? You cannot believe that you were ever so innocent as to be able to say something like that. Because since then, I have both left and been left in a great many relationships. In fact, I worked out recently that it is now exactly 50-50. So, so you could say, folks, that the next one is the tiebreaker. I looked, uh, I couldn't believe the innocence in saying that. Uh, and the innocence in kind of believing uh, something like that as well. Because life goes on and I have survived all these other relationships. I actually find the idea that you couldn't survive a relationship, that you couldn't live without someone, rather charming. You know, I imagine sort of going to see my uh, friend in the pub, like, hey, Steve, how are you? Uh, where's Dave? And he's like, oh, yeah, Dave died. Yeah, Mandy left him. Couldn't live without her. She walked out the door, he died instantly. <laughs> Complete heart failure. That's, that's how it happened. It just couldn't live without her. Reminds me of a line of the poet W.H. Auden, which is, millions have lived without love, not one without water. What I'm talking about here is a loss of innocence, a loss of innocence I had experienced. And in the Christian tradition, this is the loss of innocence is, of course, called the fall. It goes right the way back to the Garden of Eden. And the fall, as I'm sure you all know, was a decision of Adam and Eve to eat the apple. Now, first of all, I have some objections. If God had not wanted them to eat the apple, he probably should not have made the apple. I mean, the apple is no use to God, the apple of knowledge. God already knows everything anyway. If God eats the apple of knowledge, he's just hungry. Whereas Adam and Eve, it is, of course, in their nature to eat the apple because they're human and they're curious. If they weren't, I mean, the Bible would be a very dull book. The Bible, the Bible would start another day in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve continued to refuse to eat the apple, showing the distinct lack of curiosity which has marked out their existence so far. <laughs> wouldn't be much of a story. So I think that growing up is inevitably a fall. Growing up is inevitably a loss of innocence. And there are people who refuse this. There are people who refuse this loss of innocence. I'm thinking about people like the uh, 18th century poet Thomas Chatterton. He was so upset when he was exposed as a literary fraud. He drank arsenic at the age of 17. 
exactly. Or the, the writer John Kennedy Toole, right? He was so upset that someone had refused for publication his novel, A Confederacy of Dunces, that he committed suicide at the age of 31. Now, if John Kennedy Toole had not done that and, for example, was here tonight, he would be a very different man. First of all, he would be about 77 years old. And given that his uh, book has now, Confederacy of Dunces, has now sold 1.5 million copies, uh, he would probably be able to afford property in the area. <laughs> he would be a very different individual because he would have gone on and he would have compromised. So what I'm saying is this loss of innocence is part of survival. And... Let's say you have a chat with me after the show. I think you might find that I'm, and I would like to, obviously, I will be hanging around. Um, I think you might find that I'm quite a cynical individual. And it's true, I am rather cynical. I, I don't believe in much. I don't believe in Jeremy Corbyn. I don't believe in uh, marriage and children. I don't even particularly believe in what I'm saying now. <laughs> I don't have many great beliefs, okay? But what I'm saying is if you understood what had preceded this, if you had understood everything that had happened to me, you would understand why I am like I am. And there is no alternative to be me being like I am or not being here at all. That's the only other option. To exist, to survive, is to fall. I wrote a poem a few years ago which expresses this, and uh, I do actually believe this is quite a good poem. So I'm going to say that poem now. The poem is called The Wilderness. The Wilderness. He fell into the mass of men, and cynicism sustained him, drank deeply from that bitter cup, and every time it tasted good, saying, cynicism, you are my son. You help me through the death of friends. Because of you, I believe in only rain, the wilderness, and thoughts of love. So I'm happy to say that 12 years later, I am in a much better situation. Uh, I live with people I am very, very fond of. I have just finished a novel I've been working on for many years. By finished, I mean it has to be massively written still, but it's a relative uh, situation. And I'm genuinely glad uh, to, to have carried on, but I've never recovered the innocence which I lost at that time. That has never come back to me because I can always see in my head the image of that person working for social services, looking out on the garden at the woodpecker going... Some things uh, don't change. Uh, my favorite poet back then was the poet Yeats and he is still my favorite poet now. And he wrote a poem called The Coming of Wisdom with Time. I think uh, the poet poem could also have been called The Coming of Realism with Time. And I would like to finish my talk tonight by quoting this poem to you. The Coming of Wisdom with Time. Though leaves are many, the root is one. All through the lying days of my youth, I swayed my leaves and branches in the sun. Now I shall wither into the truth. Happy withering, everybody. <laughs>
James Harris, everybody. James is obviously, he's a, he's a writer, he's also a comedian, does lots of things. You should check out what he does. Right. Okay, so our next uh, performer of Tragic Fall. <clears throat> Sometimes you just have to, you know, have these awkward moments on stages with loads of people looking at you. Because the next act, you know, they deserve a mic that isn't going to fall off. Uh, you know, that's why, I'm, that's why I'm having this awkward moment, because I believe in the next performer. So the next performer, uh, he, he's, he's doing a show, basically, it's coming up next year called uh, Straight Guy. Um, and you can find out more about that at Straight Guy 2016. Uh, he's also uh, reviving a, a show that he used to do called Comedian's Bookshelf, which uh, he's going to be doing next year. And you can find that on Facebook to, uh, to find out more about it and where it's going to happen and what it's going to be. Put your hands together, everyone, for you! Eric Mould! Hello, hello. Hello, thanks. Oh, thanks for that great sales pitch. Can I just, I, I, just, want, to ha I just want to thank you for that because, um, whatever. How are we doing? Hmm, yeah? We look fucking traumatised. I'm going to make it worse. My psychiatrist didn't, um, you know, yeah. My psychiatrist didn't show up uh, this week, so um, I've got you tonight. Uh, i talk about my problems. Uh, <laughs> no, no, essentially, it's been a really wonderful night. I'm very proud to be, uh, to be a part of this night. Um, um, how should we say that? I'm not 100% in general, sort of. I'm not sort of... Yeah. It shows, doesn't it? Like, that... No, come on. You look like a supply teacher. Come on, it's fine. It's fine. Okay, French. Hello. I've done this before. I've done this... Like, the great... Okay, this is the great tragedy of this gig. I've been doing comedy for nearly ten years, and a lady just pushed a microphone further closer to my face. So we have like a good stable ground of absolute zero where we can build on and find the, the beauty. The problem with me right now with this, with this gig is I'm really happy. I'm really happy. I'm really happy for the first time in my life. I have been happy. That's very emotionally needy. But I am very happy. Okay? I've just moved in my pub. I'm very happy. Oh, well... Um, I'm so happy that, um, you know, it's just, okay, let's just visualize things because, you know, visualizing helps, they say. Oh, Yorick, why don't you visualize things? Yeah, fuck. That works on a podcast. Uh, Yorick has just kicked his bag away. He seems passive aggressive. Um, this is a box full of pills. Uh, it has certain Dutch words on it because I am Dutch. Don't like to talk about it, but I am. Um, I'm just generally giving um, sort of uh, sort of road of what I am. Um, I take in the mornings 15 milligrams of escitalopram. That's a that's, you know antidepressant. We all know that. Um, four milligrams of clonazepam, which is you know four pills of those. That is uh, you know Valium, but more. Uh, <laughs> in the morning, um, 600 milligrams of quetiapine, which is actually antipsychotic, but works as a mood stabilizer. Brilliant drug. And uh, 50 milligrams of metazepine, which is a sleeping pill. And like a couple of months ago, I was in Holland and I was at my Dutch grannies and she was like oh I've got one of those so we bonded it was great <laughs> one of those great Dutch bonding experiences that you have with an uh, elderly relative about class A drugs <laughs> so 
death shit. Um, yeah. I'm 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 a bit mental. I'm um, I've got clinical depression. If you don't know what that is, I'll sort of visualise that for you too. Um, this happened about five years ago. I was living in Brighton then, and two things happened at the same time. One, the first snowflake of the year came tumbling down, and I saw a pound coin on the floor, and I picked it up, and in my head there was this. It was this voice, it wasn't my own voice, but it was a voice that was very, very calmly saying, this is all the luck you're going to have for the rest of the year. That really happened. That's depression. It's essentially going, oh yes, these are all kinds, of, these are things that probably won't happen. These are beautiful things, but it's shit. These are, uh, these are wonderful, beautiful things that you can achieve, but you probably won't because you're a cunt. Um, Essentially, I have had little girl depression for as long as I can remember. I had anxiety issues and I've been diagnosed with borderline. I've been in psych wards. Um, I have uh, had a lot of fun there. It's great to sort of stand, uh, walk around very slowly in the middle of the room, drugged up to the eyeballs, and see a lady over there um, r uh, just going round and round on a sofa, screaming for her mother um, at the age of at least 46. Um, it was interesting. I had a very, very big drop in 2012 when I started taking drugs. And um, the voices became sort of louder, became more pronounced, became sort of, you know, I was studying in Amsterdam at the time and I was on my own in the university building because I didn't trust myself to go home. And I would just walk around alone and I just went up to the top floor, to the eighth floor in the centre of Amsterdam. And there were a couple of doors away from the roof, which led on to the Prinsengracht, one of the canals. And I was standing four doors away from the roof, and it was completely silent in the building, apart from in my head, which went, good, I hope you like it. I hope you jump down and your head just blows off and hits a horse in the face, and then six elderly Japanese tourists are sick on a pedalo. <laughs> You can't not blame my depression for not having a sense of humour. That's what I'm trying to say. That's essentially what I'm trying to say. Um, um, so, um, the kind of thing that um, helps is 15 years ago my father died and my father um, committed suicide. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and uh, borderline syndrome. He died at the age of 43. Um, and when that happened, I was 12 years old. And um, he had been in hospital for the past year. Uh, so, you know, my friends knew about that. I was in Steiner school, so he, you know, he helped out with sort of counting lentils and things so that we do. Um, and we were, yes, yeah, all right, you can laugh, it's fine. It's fine. It's needy, can't. Um, so, what happened was this I was um, late the Monday, he died on the Friday. And on the Monday, I wanted to go back to school because it was fucking miserable just being on my own, playing Mario 64, finishing in two days. Um, and so I saw my teacher at, uh, finishing up the story that I was telling. I knew it was about me. And so he was like, yeah, come in. And I opened the door. 27 faces turned. And they were... They were not staring at me. They were so, not so much as staring slightly above me, you know, as if death was sitting on my back. And 
you know, great, I wasn't going to be picked on for two years, but um, what happened was this. Um, in the first break, this kid came up to me and he just heard the most horrible things that he ever heard in his life. He heard that someone he knew had killed themselves, had done something to themselves so that they no longer existed. So you'd be confused. And he came up to me and um, he said, so Yorick, um, your father killed himself, so when are you going to do that too? One more thing before I'm going to leave. Um, you've, been, uh, you've been listening. Uh, no, actually, you've been very, very nice. You've been just going, a man over there is literally sleeping on, a, on, a, on his girlfriend's shoulder. <laughs> Hello, sir. Good morning. You're doing like that. It's not Japan in 1998. Come on. <laughs> Crying out loud. Swank is like, I'm trying to do, make you feel something about my fucking life. Hello, pictures. <laughs> Twitter. Just saw this cunt. He was talking about this problems. Hashtag lols. Send. No? Okay, he's falling asleep again, whatever. Um, so I'm going to finish on, on, on this bit. This is uh, something that my father always had problems with life. My father had always problems with dealing with me, always problems with loving other people, always bit, oh, serious troubles with opening up. And we, have, we now only have ideas of what would have happened, what he really thought, what he really was, but we do know that he was suffering. And um, when I was about six, I asked my parents to make up their own stories um, whether they give me a bed bedtime story, because my mother is amazing at that. My mother is excellent, excellent, excellent. My father, not so much. Um, essentially what he would do, and he tried this for three days, is random animal, which he would just pick, um, and the narrative is, he is looking for a sense of home. <laughs> After three times, I mean, I wasn't a horrible six-year-old. I was going, fuck, you know. I was, I was, I said with the kindest possible intonation in my voice, like, Dad, I don't really think this is working. No. And um, I have been in therapy <laughs> since. And um, the thing is that death never leaves you. I think when you, when you experience death, there is a certain caesura in everyone's life. When they first experience death and they become... Um, their life becomes coloured by that. The view of life in the world and people around them becomes coloured by that because there is a sense of finality. There is a notion that something might just stop and be taken away forever. And I think that gigs like this, what they really give you is the knowledge of that other people go through it as well. And that however deep down and depressed we feel, um, we're never really alone. At least I'm not. I don't know about you. So I'm going to leave this without a joke. Thank you very much. Yorick Mole, everybody! I think I might just start booking all my nights just based on like significant uh, Shakespeare characters. Now I've had Yorick on. Um, so yeah, I mean, what, that's kind of like one of the archetypal kind of uh, stand-up tragedy sets. Like there is pretty much never a stand-up tragedy where we don't talk about mental health. And there's pretty much never a stand-up tragedy where we don't talk about bereavement. So uh, if you like those things, check out the podcast. Uh, there's loads of other episodes with uh, some excellent performances on. Now, uh, I'm going to introduce our last performer, and she's uh, amazing. She's 
perform with us many times and she's going to do, do her set and then after that remember uh, I'm going to get us to sing uh, Autumn Days and we're going to have like a, a cathartic sing-along so any, any f- negative feelings you're having now uh, you can put into that song uh, that you might remember from your assemblies at school and if you hated school uh, more trauma after this performer right so uh, she is doing a, she's in a play called uh, Idiot, I'm not going to be able to pronounce it because it's one of those clever words. Idiomotor. That's, that's good enough. Uh, from the 20, 26th to the 30th of October at the Etc. Theatre. Um, she also does comedy and storytelling. Put your hands together, everyone, for Bridie Lee Kennedy! Hello. Um... Hello everyone, and a hearty fuck you to Dave for making me close this night. Um, I have rarely felt like more of a fraud in my career uh, because there were people on tonight um, talking about things about which I am incredibly passionate uh, and they were talking about it very eloquently. Um, And I spent most of the middle act thinking about how much I'm sure my parents wish that they'd given birth to one of those people. (laughs) Um, Because I am the child of uh, a union leader and um, a woman who runs a refugee advocacy organisation in Australia where we lock up children. Uh, So that's my parents. Um, In contrast, I write funny articles about why masturbation is good for you. So... Yeah, they're really proud. Um, Fuck it, they're in Australia. They don't know. I could have said something great tonight. Um, But, uh, yeah, thank you guys who have stuck it out to the end. Um, You didn't know it was going to be me, probably, but I'm going to choose to take it as a vote of confidence. Oh, wow. No, you didn't. Okay. Well, that's clear. Um... I am going to tell you a story now, uh, and it is a story um, of, of a fall of sorts, uh, and I, I hope that it will leave you uplifted. Um, I'd like to end on an uplifting note, but uh, we shall see. So this is the story of my final autumn. It was an August dawn in Edinburgh, frosty and pink and grey, and an old friend and I had just spent an hour conversationally one-upping each other in the living room of an all-night party. As new light drifted in through the window, turning the edges of everything grey with a reminder that, oh look, it's daytime outside and other people are starting their lives and you guys are drunk. (laughs) I felt worn out. And I was getting ready to admit social defeat when my old friend looked at me, yawned, and said, So, are you ready to take me home yet? I was. At 6am, I pretty much always am. So he left first to avoid arousing suspicion. And then as I tried to leave... Uh, Leo, the older gentleman hosting the party, um, Leo was 35 in human years, but eternal in carny years. <laughs> Leo grabbed my wrist and asked me if I'd like a sniff for the road. 
I followed him into his bathroom, which was all silver, like it had been built for this exact purpose. And I watched as he racked up three perfect lines. As I bent down over the first one, I heard Leo ask, Bridie, do you think I'll be a good dad? Now, that's a tricky question to answer at the best of times, but it's even harder when you're bent over a pile of the Oscars' illegal substances. But after I inhaled, I stood up and said with as much conviction as I could muster, Well, Leo, um, for as long as I've known you, you've always been very... generous. And Leo nodded, apparently pleased with my words because he was generous. He was a good man. And his children, just like the much younger women who frequently followed him into bathrooms, would want for nothing. (laughs) I left after that and found my old friend waiting for me in the street. We kissed once just to make sure. And then we headed back to my flat. Now, everything started to kick in at this point, so there was rapid nudity and mouth stuff done through dangerously grinding teeth. And then I climbed on top of him and I pressed my face into his neck. When I pulled away, I saw blood. Lots of, like, all the blood. (laughs) Oh, um, uh, sorry to interrupt your uh, uh, flow. Um, I seem to be bleeding uh, out my face (laughs) onto you. (laughs) My old friend looked up and his eyes focused just long enough for him to see that I was telling the truth. Yeah, (laughs) sorry, my bad. Um, So I might just go to the bathroom and clean this off and I grabbed some makeup wipes sitting by the bed. You can uh, wipe your neck. (laughs) I stood up and looked down at my old friend's naked body, which was hairier than I'd expected it to be, and now speckled with blood from my drug-damaged nose. And I started to laugh maniacally, blood still pouring from my face and dripping onto my naked breasts. I laughed until I couldn't breathe, and then I choked on my own blood, and I laughed some more. My old friend couldn't look away and he started to narrate the spectacle. Oh my God, Bridie, you look crazy. Like maybe you've just killed someone. (laughs) Like you've killed them and then eaten their face. And I don't really know why you'd get naked to kill someone and eat their face, but you do seem happy that they're dead. (laughs) Oh. Oh God, is this something you do? Do you kill people and then eat their face after sex? Are you gonna do it to me? If you are, could I come first? (laughs) That was a joke, it's just you're still bleeding quite a lot. (laughs) And at that moment, my phone buzzed. I picked it up, I'm not really sure why, it wasn't exactly the right moment for interaction with the outside world. And I saw a message from this new boy that I'd met the night before. This new, beautiful boy who'd seemed shy and earnest, and I'd met him before the party, and before the drugs, and before my old friend, and before this very bloody dawn. This new boy was messaging me at seven in the morning to say, hey, it was so great to meet you last night, we should definitely get a drink sometime. And I looked back and forth from the new boy on my phone to the old friend in my bed. And I started to laugh again. (laughs) Within a month, I'd love them both. It was a warm September 
afternoon as I stepped off the train in Liverpool and received the message saying that my niece had been born in Florida. Now, I was in Liverpool to visit that new boy. We'd been corresponding for weeks and that's where he lived. And as I stepped off the train, he was there to meet me and he hugged me and I told him excitedly that my niece had been born and I, I told him her name. And he grabbed my hand and started to drag me through the streets of Liverpool, a city I'd never been to before, so I had no idea where we were going. And he dragged me through these very grey streets until eventually we arrived at a huge, beautiful building that turned out to be the library. We went inside and he continued to drag me through stacks and stacks of books. And then he opened a small wooden door and we entered a beautiful room that's the rare old book section of Liverpool Library. And he started to scan the shelves, still gripping my hand, until he found what he was looking for. It was a baby names book from over a hundred years ago. And he pulled it out and he flicked through until he found my niece's name. And then he took my hand and he put it on the page. And I closed my eyes. And I felt closer to my family. That night we went down to the docks and drank arguably too much wine. <laughs> Back in London, my old friend had moved in a few weeks earlier. He'd come to stay for the night and had just sort of not left. Which actually didn't seem weird to me because when I was seven, there was a cyclone and we had a cat that did the same thing. <laughs> it was comfortable with him. He was a wonderful lover, the friend, not the cat. There is a limit to how far this story goes. <laughs> I just loved having him around. He knew I was going to Liverpool and he knew why and he was fine with it. And when I returned the next night, he'd made me dinner. And so we ate together and then we stayed up late drinking whiskey and talking about the peculiar passion that you have for your nieces and nephews, which he told me collectively are called your nibblings. <laughs> nibblings. It is the cutest word in the English language. I challenge you to find something cuter. So we stayed up almost all night. I slept for about an hour and then got up while he was still asleep and headed to Gatwick because I was going to Florida to spend two weeks with my baby niece. My old friend stayed in my room while I was gone and I knew that he missed me because he sent me daily Snapchats of him trying on my dresses. <laughs> I missed him too. I also missed Liverpool, though I barely knew it. It was a chilly November evening and my old friend was moving out. He was heading back to Australia because he, um, well, he doesn't really do cold weather <laughs> and also because we'd done all we could for each other. It came late in the season but he was the most summery romance imaginable and I, I think this guy well, that might be his fate, to just travel the world being a perfect summer fling. When I saw him again, it, it was winter and he looked wrong in a coat. We said goodbye and then we hugged for ages. It felt good. And then I got on a mega bus to Liverpool, which felt considerably less good. <laughs> My northern relationship had gone quite rapidly south. 
Now, this was my third trip to Liverpool in three months. And I could end the story there and you'd be like, yeah, fair play, that does sound like a bad relationship. Because <laughs> here's the thing about Liverpool. I'm sure it has some good qualities, but it is not romantic. <laughs> it's not sexy. No one's ever gone, ooh, I quite fancy a weekend away with my lover, but I think I'll skip the beautiful beaches of Brighton or a Lakes District B&B and just really get down. Merseyside. <laughs> Liverpool is grey and it's bleak and it loves how grey and bleak it is. Like it really gets off on its own quite sad history. And I'm sorry, but I'm just not that kind of masochist. <laughs> the town depressed me more every time I visited and there were no number of trips to the Natural History Museum or visits to see some toilet that John Lennon might have once pissed in that were enough to convince me that this was a city or ultimately a person that I needed in my life. And I would like to go back to Liverpool when I'm not trying to have a relationship there because I'm sure I'm being unfair to the place. But Liverpool felt built for bad relationships. I hardly saw anyone holding hands or kissing in the street, but I did see four fights break out on a single Wednesday night. <laughs> and I was in a vegan cafe. <laughs> I mean, you might miss cheese, but does it make you that angry? <laughs> Liverpool felt like a place where it was easier to break up than fall in love, but I'm probably biased on this point. It's possible that if you'd sent me and this guy to, like, Tahiti, we still couldn't have made it work. Though, incidentally, if anyone is interested in funding a research project in which I'm sent to different tropical islands to see how long my relationships last, I am listening. <laughs> Now, this new boy of mine, he, he was a poet. And I'm sorry, because I know we all got together a few years ago and agreed to stop banging poets. <laughs> it does encourage them, that one's on me. Um, but see, the way I knew he was a poet was less by the words he produced and more by how he produced them. Exclusively on a typewriter. <laughs> which he kept in his bedroom, a room lit only by fairy lights. <laughs> and these fairy lights illuminated two things. One, his dark, soulful eyes that promised a much more interesting person than they delivered. <laughs> and two, the poster of Stephen Gerrard that hung above his bed. <laughs> Because, oh yes, he was a lad poet, which is a breed I could have gone to my grave without discovering existed. You want the worst of both worlds, ladies? I had one. But I loved him. I loved him in a truly autumnal way, filled with riotous colour, but mainly just a precursor to months of misery. <laughs> On my last night in Liverpool, we were separated at 9pm. He didn't answer his phone or his texts. And by the time I found him, it was 7.30am and he was in some random kitchen on the other side of town. And I was so furious with him when I walked in that I barely noticed the completely drug-fucked teenager sitting in the corner until that teenager grabbed the bottom of my skirt, tugged and said, Hey. Hey, you. Did you know 
that you have very hairy arms. <laughs> and then he turned to my new boy and said, hey, hey. Pal, did you know that uh, your missus has very hairy arms? Yeah, he responded. But I'm mostly okay with it. <laughs> we finally left that kitchen at 9 a.m. and headed back to his house in silence. I went into the bathroom telling him I needed to wash off my face, but what I was actually washing off was the whole freezing night and the many painful months and the terrible, ugly feelings that I was having. I looked at myself in his mirror, my reflections surrounded by Liverpool FC towels and the various Lynx body sprays of his flatmates. <laughs> and I told myself, it was time to go. The first time I kissed my husband. It was spring. And it still is. Thank you, I've been Bradley. Bradley Lee Kennedy, everybody. Okay. So, I mean, as I said earlier, I'd like to end the night we just sing along. Sometimes it's kind of tragic shambles, sometimes it's a beautiful moment. <laughs> both of those things are good, both of those things kind of appropriate for the night. Um, we had a really good review once that said, uh, we, we, you know, it was very favourable about the night, but it said, uh, although the end was a little bit like uh, an assembly with a slightly mad RE teacher. <laughs> and uh, apart from the stigmatising of my mental health issues, which yes, I am slightly mad, and what, what's, what's the issue with that? Uh, I quite like, um, because of the fact that, uh, that, uh, that yeah, uh, that's kind of what it feels like. And so tonight, I've really, really gone with that, to the point where it really is like an assembly with a slightly mad RE teacher, because we're going to be doing this song, which hopefully some of you are going to know. Yeah. If you know this song, let me know now. Yes. yes. That's good. So I'm not going to be like completely on my own here. Okay. I guess I'm, like the Americans in the audience probably are not going to know this. No. Now learn. No. <laughs> now learn. I like that. I like that. First bit time. You will force the Americans to learn our English customs. It doesn't sound quite right without a recorder. It doesn't sound right without a recorder. Good point. <laughs> in tune enough. Okay, so um, yeah, I, there's only one thing I've changed one of the words to it used to be gardens but I put pavements because I think that's kind of more evocative and more appropriate to London and so I hope that that's, that's okay with everybody and the other thing is how this tragic probably isn't, um, but uh, I guess nostalgia is ultimately a tragic emotion and that's what we're going to feel now Are you ready everybody? Okay, right I didn't think that's how you'd be doing this on a Friday night, okay.
There you go. That's the kind of British values we indoctrinate in our children, American listeners. Um, yes, uh, so this has been Stand Up Tragedy. You can find us uh, on Facebook to Stand Up Tragedy. Follow us at Stand Up For Tragedy. Uh, we're going to have some tragic songs and dance into the night if you guys want to stay around. We can move some of those chairs around, make a dance floor, and have this kind of area to like hang and be chill. Um, and so, yeah, that's going to happen if you want it. It's all about consent. So, we'll find out more about Stand Up Tragedy www.standuptragedy.co.uk. I'm going to stand up tragedy present, like I said, on the 19th of November at uh, the Dog Star in Brixton. That's going to be my show. What about the men? That's going to be really, really serious. Like a whole hour of serious. Not very many laughs. It's about being bully, being sexually assaulted, fun stuff. And then uh, an hour of some more fun stuff. podcast has been produced by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and the Reactionary.